Hello again, and welcome to the Quilkin. My name is still Benjo Taylor, and this is the second episode. And it's been quite a long time coming, hasn't it? Sorry about that. Uh, firstly, thank you very much for all the lovely feedback that I had about episode one. Sincerely, massively appreciated, and is probably the only reason that this episode exists. Such is my vanity. Um, I'm supposed to ask you to go and uh, like or review whatever it is on iTunes, etc. I'm not going to do that. You can do that if you want to. Um, do follow me on Twitter, though, at the Quilkin. That's the Q-U-I-L-K-I-N. Now, yes, this episode took a little bit longer to get out than I would have liked. That was for various reasons. One of which is that all the primary sources were not in English, so I had to translate them. So, disclaimer, any names or pronunciations are almost certainly not correct, but I have done my very best. I think I will leave it now and allow you to crack on with uh, listening. All that's left for me to say once more is thank you very, very much for downloading. July the 1st, 1968. Matthias Rust is born in Wedel, just outside of Hamburg in West Germany. As a child, Matthias was obsessed with two things. Firstly, flying, and secondly, the constantly looming threat of nuclear Armageddon. Perfectly healthy. Uh, this was actually not that surprising, though, given the situation at the time. Relations between East and West were, to put it mildly, not very good. Now, when I say the West, I mean countries like the United uh, States and the UK. When I say the East, I mean the Soviet Union, of which East Germany is still a part. Rust grew up in West Germany. Uh, many West Germans were nervous because, quote, if there was a conflict, we all knew we would be the first to be hit. This nervousness was not helped when Ronald Reagan became President of the United States in 1981, when Rust was 12, and immediately embarked on what seemed to be an almost personal crusade against the Soviet Union. In his very first press conference, he questioned the legitimacy of the Soviet government, and two years later, he infamously called them the Evil Empire. So... This isn't the language of someone who's particularly looking to negotiate or de-escalate, is it? Um, then, in 1983, NATO begins to station nuclear missile launchers around Europe, 108 of which were to be in West Germany. This prompts many to take to the streets in protest, including Rust, who by this point is 17, but he sees that protesting at home doesn't really achieve very much, and this instills in him his belief in the lone fighter as opposed to mass protest. Now, in 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev becomes leader of the Soviet Union, and he offers to many a glimmer of hope. Gorbachev was young, charismatic, and a complete contrast to his very militaristic uh, predecessors. Two of his key policies were glasnost, which is transparency in government, something the Soviets had just never had, and perestroika, which is economic reform. Uh, Gorbachev brought optimism for change in a similar manner, I suppose, to Obama uh, when he took office uh, in the States. He was also, unfortunately, though, a complete contrast to Ronald Reagan. Gorbachev was keen to bring to an end the arms race that had been happening between East and West. Now, this wasn't purely through a desire for peace and love. The Soviets were spending just under 25% of their GDP on defence. They were, frankly, running out of money. Um, Reagan, though, is much more reluctant uh, to compromise. It would have been very hard for him to be seen to be negotiating with the Soviets after all of his rhetoric against them. 
Now, all of this fuels Rust's sense of disillusionment, and he retreats further into himself. He's a bit of a dreamer, and he begins to fantasise about a better world. Then, in 1986, Reagan and Gorbachev meet face-to-face for the first time for disarmament talks. Neither leader trusts the other enough to enter their country, and so a compromise must be sought, and the city of Reykjavik in Iceland is chosen. Iceland is roughly halfway between the US and Russia, and Gorbachev decides to ignore the fact that it's actually a member of NATO. Uh, The US delegation stays in fancy hotels. The Russians live in a ship just off the coast. This summit is a real uh, opportunity for hope, particularly, it seems, for Gorbachev. He sees this as a chance to bring to an end the arm race, which is frankly crippling his country. If it was solely down to him, he would probably go ahead and start scaling back anyway. But he is a relatively radical voice amongst a sea of crusty old guard Politburo members. They won't accept any change unless the Americans are seen to be doing similar. This meeting is a real biggie. So on October the 11th, Reagan and Gorbachev sit down in the pleasingly named Hoofty House and begin to negotiate. They dance around different flavours of uh, disarmament, particularly regarding ballistic missiles and Reagan's uh, plans to put a missile defence system in space, which became known as Star Wars. Uh, But Reagan is completely unwilling to compromise. After two days, the summit comes to an end with no agreement. They can't even release a joint statement at the end of it. Gorbachev returns to Russia and says in a televised address, quote, literally two or three steps before a decision was made from decisions that could have been historic, these steps were not taken. This comes as a blow to a very many people and certainly to Rust, who by this point is 18 and doing an apprenticeship as a banker. Rust has put an awful lot of hope into Gorbachev. He believes, perhaps justifiably, that the West has no interest in disarmament and he sees Gorbachev as the best chance, potentially, to avoid nuclear war. He's concerned that if Gorbachev doesn't have success soon, he'll be ousted and replaced by the Soviets uh, with someone who's even less interested in de-escalation than Reagan. So Gorbachev's perceived failure in Reykjavik hits Rust very hard. He withdraws even further into himself and he begins to fantasise. He draws up plans for his, quote, desirable ideal society and writes up a 40, that's four zero, page document detailing how it would work, including no parliaments, the citizens themselves vote on laws, uh, the right to basic housing for all, guaranteed training and guaranteed employment for all, state ownership of key industries to prevent private monopoly, uh, wage and salary payments based on performance, maximum prices for basic food items and transparent justice. He calls his dreamland Lagonia. Now, many of the features of Lagonia are, in my opinion, pretty decent things to wish for, if a little bit idealistic. But Rust is only 18, remember, and being idealistic is what teenagers do. But Rust doesn't stop at dreaming. He is increasingly obsessed with what he as an individual can do to help the situation, to bridge the gap between East and West. Matthias Rust has an idea, and over time, that idea becomes a plan. So, as we heard earlier, Matthias's other passion besides trying to stop nuclear war, was flying, and he'd been a member of Hamburg Aero Club since 1985. 
He loves flying so much, in fact, that he decides that aviation is his true calling, and he withdraws from his apprenticeship at the bank to begin his training towards becoming a professional pilot. And he does show some aptitude, a uh, quote from his instructor, Matthias was so fascinated by flying, I've never seen it before, and yet he wasn't a daredevil, but a very disciplined pilot. Still at the age of 18, Matthias gets his pilot's licence. It costs him 10,000 Deutschmarks, which is actually paid for uh, by his parents. It's relatively cheap at the time to hire an aircraft from Hamburg Aero Club. It's around 200 Deutschmarks for an hour's flight, including fuel, or an aircraft can be booked out for longer trips for a little bit less. In order to support his new career in its embryonic stages, Matthias has landed a job doing data processing at a mail order company, and he's been saving up for a long flight as his winter holiday. After the failed peace talks in Reykjavik, though, and with visions of Lagonia spinning in his head, he changes his mind and decides to use his money for something else. 18-year-old Matthias Rust of West Germany, until very recently an apprentice clerk at a bank, is going to fly to Moscow to talk to Gorbachev. So Rust has his licence, but he's only rated to navigate visually, i.e. just looking out of the window. He's not qualified to fly following instruments alone. Uh, This means that he's going to need plenty of daylight and good weather, so he decides to wait until spring. This gives him plenty of time to prepare. Firstly, he needs maps and charts, and this is surprisingly easy. There's a company in West Germany that inexplicably sells aviation charts for places like the United States and the Soviet Union, so Matthias just sends off for some. He finds a map of Moscow itself in a bookshop. Well, what about the aircraft? Well, Hamburg Aero Club has a choice of four that can be chartered for long trips, though of course they've no idea where Rust actually intends to take the plane. He chooses, probably sensibly, the one with the longest range, which is a Cessna 172. Uh, Now, a a Cessna 172 is a very good beginner aircraft. It's high wing, the wing sits above the cockpit, it's very forgiving, it's difficult to stall, and it's not particularly fast. This is why it's so popular with flying clubs and flight schools for training brand new pilots. Uh, In fact, if you've ever had a flying lesson uh, and the aircraft's wing was up above you, there's a very good chance it was a Cessna 172. That was certainly the case for me. Difficult to stall, as I say, but as it turns out, not impossible. So Rust books out the Cessna for three weeks in May, and when the time finally rolls around, he starts off by making a few modifications. To make more space for his luggage and navigation gear, he removes the co-pilot seat and the rear bench. Apparently unaware of his real plan, his dad actually helps him to do this. He loads a motorbike helmet because, quote, I didn't know what the Soviets would do, and if I was forced down, it would give me extra protection. He also packs several copies of his uh, manifesto for Lagonia, as well as, for reasons which will become clear later, some shiny gold self-adhesive foil. So Rust is all ready to go, and his plan, such as it is, is as follows. He's not going to attempt to fly straight from Hamburg to Moscow, partly because an aircraft coming straight from West Germany would be particularly suspicious, but also because he's not sure he actually has the guts to go through with it. So he decides that he's going to fly from Hamburg to Reykjavik in Iceland to test his mental strength. He reckons if he can make it that far, then he'll feel confident enough to crack on to Moscow. 
There's also a more uh, spiritual reason for his choice. It is, of course, where Gorbachev and Reagan had met the previous year. He hopes that by visiting the site of the summit, he can soak up some of its importance, or as he puts it, quote, the spirit of the great event, which will inspire him to complete his mission. If that's the case, he will fly from Reykjavik to Bergen in Norway, then on to Helsinki, and from there he'll start his final leg. Now, exactly what he plans to do once he gets to Moscow is a little bit harder to decipher. He wants to meet with Gorbachev in person uh, and ideally to give him his manifesto for Lagonia. But it's also that he wants his flight in itself to be symbolic, saying if he could, quote, pass through the Iron Curtain without being intercepted, it would show that Gorbachev was serious about new relations with the West. How would Reagan continue to say it was the empire of evil if me, in a small aircraft, can go straight there and be unharmed? All right, so just taking a step back from all of this to have a look at his plan. Putting aside the political and the military implications and dangers of what he intends to do, just looking at it purely from an aviation perspective... It's madness. He's planning to take an aircraft which is not designed for trips of this type a very long way. Uh, The Cessna isn't fitted with the radios required for oceanic flight, i.e. a long way from land, and the distance from Reykjavik to Bergen is over 900 miles, which is all over the sea. To consider that in a single-engine aircraft is confident, to say the very least. And a Cessna's really slow, so it's going to take a very long time. Plus, of course, Rust is limited to flying visually, so bad weather or visibility could really screw him over. And also, to legally attempt a flight over the Atlantic in the first place, a pilot needed at least ten times the hours of experience that Rust had. The whole idea really is madness. It's the kind of thing which could only be dreamt up, let alone attempted, by an idealistic teenager. But of course, that's exactly what Matthias Rust is. I must admit that there's a certain hopeful naivety to his plan that I find quite disarming. He had to hope that it would have the same effect on the Russians, except, of course, literally. Quote from Rust. I thought my chances of actually getting to Moscow were about 50-50. But I was convinced I was doing the right thing. I just had to dare to do it. At 10.51am on May 13th, 1987... A Cessna 172, registration Delta Echo Charlie Juliet Bravo, takes off from Wehrtesen Airfield, just outside of Hamburg. Pilot in command, Matthias Rust. His plan is underway. Even if he's still not sure, he'll actually be able to go through with it. He flies just over 100 miles northwest to Vesterland on the island of Silt, which is just off the coast of mainland Germany, level with the border with Denmark. It's the northernmost point in Germany. Here, he tops up his fuel and completes his customs forms, allowing him to leave German airspace. I assume nobody checked his licence at this or any subsequent point because he's allowed to crack on. He then continues to the northwest, flying for five hours over the North Sea before touching down in Sunburg on the Shetland Islands off of Scotland. He spends the night here before taking off and again heading northwest to Vagar on the Danish Faroe Islands. The next day, he flies northwest for the final time in his journey before landing in Reykjavik on May the 15th. So far, he has flown a little under 1,400 miles, which is roughly the distance from London to Athens. Amazingly, Everything is going exactly according to plan. Rust stays in Iceland for eight days. He enjoys some sightseeing, including exploring the island in his Cessna. 
On landing back from one such sightseeing trip, he finds that Icelandic customs are waiting for him. They hadn't been able to contact him by radio, and they suspected him of having secretly landed somewhere to steal the eggs of some protected species of bird. Uh, they search his plane, but of course they don't find any eggs, and apparently find nothing else that's suspicious. One day, he hires a car and drives to Hufti House, the building where Gorbachev had met with Reagan. At first, he can't find it, but after bimbling around for a bit, eventually he finds the site of the meeting, which he'd put so much hope into and the failure of which had inspired him to set off on his trip. It was closed, but, quote, I felt I got in touch with the spirit of the place. I was so emotionally involved then and was so disappointed with the failure of the summit, so it gave me motivation to continue. And there's one last thing that Rust gets up to while he's in Iceland. Uh, if you remember, I'd mentioned before that he'd packed some shiny gold foil. Well, before he'd left Germany, he'd cut it into a logo or a symbol for his peace mission. Uh, he takes it out of his bag and sticks it onto the outside of his plane in six places, on the top and bottom of each wing and on the left and right of the tail fin. The symbol has five parts a circle in the middle that represents the earth, a triangle at the top to represent the sky, and at the bottom, three pillars holding up the earth, which symbolise peace, freedom and hope. Unfortunately for him, it's later agreed that his symbol looks much more like an image of Little Boy, which was the nuclear bomb which was dropped on Hiroshima. Well, his little Icelandic holiday comes to an end and it's time to continue with his mission, though he's still not convinced he has the nerve to see it through. But again, he decides to press on and just see what happens when he reaches the critical moment. On May the 23rd, Russ takes off from Reykjavik, heads to Hurfen on the east coast of Iceland and from there back to the Shetland Islands. The next day, he flies southeast to Bergen on the west coast of Norway. The most dangerous part of his trip in terms of the flying alone i.e. the hours and hours out over the sea by himself, is now over. The next day, May 25th, he flies due east to Helsinki in Finland and checks into a hotel in the middle of the city. This is potentially his last stop before Moscow. He telephones his parents to let them know he'll be staying two more days before heading home. The weather is miserable and so is Matthias. He's still not sure whether or not he can do it. He goes for long walks, his mind changing constantly. By now, Matthias has flown nearly 2,600 miles, which is roughly the distance from London to Baghdad, and is a little bit more than the distance between New York and Los Angeles. Rust feels he's proved his skills to himself as a pilot, but he still doubts his nerve. One minute, he's sure that this is something he has to do. The next, no, it's crazy. He struggles to sleep on the night of the 27th. The next morning, he drives to the airport, checks the weather, submits a flight plan to Stockholm, which is where he'll head if he, in his words, chickens out. He fills the plane with fuel. The head of the airport later says that this surprised him somewhat. Stockholm is three hours flying time at the most. Full tanks gives Rust eight hours of flying time, but nothing is said at the time. At 12.21pm on May the 28th, Rust takes off from Malmi Airport just outside of Helsinki. Stockholm lays almost directly west over the Gulf of Finland, so air traffic control vector him that way. They also ask him to remain low to avoid commercial traffic. Now, Rust Cessna does have a transponder, which is a device that emits a code when interrogated by radar, and this helps to identify a specific aircraft. However, 
For whatever reason, the controllers in Helsinki hadn't assigned Rust a code, so he turned the transponder off. This means that controllers will be able to pick up his plane on a radar purely based on radar signals bouncing off of the skin, but they won't be able to see its specific code. They won't be able to see that it's specifically him. Uh, A clumsy analogy would be to say it's like driving a car around with no number plates, uh, but if all cars were the same type and colour. Something like that. Staying low, as instructed, Rust flies west for around 20 minutes, when air traffic radio him to say he's leaving their control area. He thanks them for their help and says goodbye. He continues on course to Stockholm for a few more minutes, and then Matthias Rust makes his decision. Quote, All of a sudden, I just turned the airplane to the left. It wasn't really even a decision. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't excited. It was almost like the airplane was on autopilot. I just turned and headed straight across to the border. The border he's talking about, of course, is that of the Soviet Union. Finnish air traffic control still have rust on their radar screens and they notice his change of direction. They see him flying south and then east, directly away from his reported destination of Stockholm. He passes through restricted military airspace, restricted not by the Soviets yet, but still by Finland. They try to contact him by radio. No response. At around 1pm, 40 minutes after he took off, Rust's aircraft vanishes from their radar screen. Finnish air traffic control issue a missing aircraft signal. 15 minutes later, a helicopter pilot reports seeing a patch of oil in the water near where Rust was last detected. Search and rescue teams are scrambled, including divers looking for the wreckage of the crashed Cessna. Meanwhile, Rust is now flying a heading of 117 degrees, east-southeast, directly towards Moscow. He puts on his motorbike helmet. Quote, I wasn't relaxed like on a sightseeing flight or an overland flight. I checked the surveillance equipment the altitude, the speed, the emergency surveillance instruments, but basically it felt like it was next to me, an out-of-body experience, I would say. He is now approaching the Soviet coast near Kotlyava in northeast Estonia. A few minutes later, he penetrates Soviet airspace. Now, Finnish air traffic control may have lost radar contact with Rust, but by this stage, he was very much being watched by someone else. At 2.10pm Russian time, the officer in charge of RLSP-1 radar station on the Soviet coast reports an unidentified light-engine aircraft approaching the shore. However, due to major restructuring which had taken place in Soviet air defence in the last few years, communication between the military and civilian air traffic control no longer works. The Soviets try, but they aren't able to ask Finnish air traffic control if they know anything about this random little plane which is entering their airspace. They keep trying to clarify the situation for nearly 20 minutes, but they aren't able to get through. This means, of course, that as far as the Finns are concerned, Rust still appears to have crashed, and so they continue with their search and rescue mission. So it's 19 minutes from the Soviets first detecting Rust to actually assigning him a combat number, which happened to be 8255. By this point, he's actually getting quite far inland. Army units in the area are put on high alert. At 2.29 Russian time, the commander of 656th Fighter Wing, based in the city of Tapa, decides to send a couple of fighters up to investigate. Rust is still merrily bimbling along, now about one hour into his flight. The sun is shining. 
Everything seems to be going very well indeed. Suddenly, he sees, quote, a black shadow shooting in the sky and then disappearing. A minute passes. Then a shape appears out of a layer of clouds in front of him. Quote, it was coming at me very fast and dead on, and it went whoosh right over me. Another minute passes. Quote, I remember how my heart felt, beating very fast. This was exactly the moment when you start to ask yourself, is this when they shoot me down? And then, from behind him, slightly lower and to his left, a MiG-23 fighter pulls alongside him. Rust can see the two pilots in their orange flight suits, their white helmets and their oxygen masks. He can also see the big red Soviet star on the tail fin. Now, if you asked a 10-year-old to draw a picture of a mean-looking fighter jet, a MiG-23 is probably pretty similar to what they'd come up with. It's quite a menacing-looking piece of kit. Its wingspan is about three times that of Russ's Cessna. And because it's an interceptor, it's also designed to fly at more than twice the speed of sound, which, of course, Russ's plane is very much not doing. In fact, he's flying far slower than a MiG-23 is supposed to go at all. To be able to fly slowly enough to even get a bit of a look at rust, the MiG pilot has to put his aircraft into the landing configuration. Wings swept forward, flaps extended, even the landing gear down, creating as much drag as he possibly can just to be able to fly slow enough to get a little bit of a look. And even then, it's not that slowly. The Soviet pilots report back that the mystery aircraft is a Yak-12, which is basically the Russian version of a Cessna. They do look very similar, to be fair, especially as they aren't able to get a prolonged look at Rust. They aren't able to reach him on the radio. The MiG-23 retracts his flaps and gear, speeds up, performs a couple of orbits of Rust, and then disappears. One question which was later asked was why the MiG pilot didn't waggle his wings at Rust, which is a signal to follow me and land at the next airfield. The answer was simple, quote, We did not succeed in forcing him to land because there are very large speed differences between an interceptor and the rust plane. Fair enough. Because of the report from the MiG pilot that the intruder is a Yak-12 rather than a Cessna, it is assumed that Russ's aircraft belongs to one of the local aero clubs. Quote, Every minute there were 10,000 such small planes as the one which Rust flew in the skies of the Soviet Union. We had aviation in agriculture that was busy fertilising our fields, planes that were used for harvesting. There were also aero clubs across the country and in each of these clubs there were little planes of a Cessna type flying. Shortly after the fighter leaves him, Rust descends to avoid some low cloud. It would later be claimed that he deliberately flew low to avoid radar, but actually the opposite is true. He flies as high as he can to make himself as visible to radar as possible, because he reasons that that will make his friendly intentions clear. In any case, when he descends to avoid the weather, he disappears from the Soviet radar screens. Once he's clear of the cloud, he climbs back up to a higher altitude and at 3pm he pops up on radar once again, but this time in a new sector, Granovo, the commander of which orders two more fighters to take off and find the intruder. Having been lucky with his first encounter with a fighter, but also having travelled some distance further now on a course toward what is increasingly obviously Moscow, there's a very good chance that a second occurrence wouldn't have gone quite as well for Rust, particularly if these pilots had managed to get a better look at his plane. 
Fortunately for him, though, they don't manage to see it at all. In the time between them taking off and reaching his reported position, the weather has deteriorated once again and they aren't able to find him. They search for about half an hour before giving up. Not long after this, I wasn't able to find an exact time, but it would have been around 3.30, Rust approaches an area covered by the Moscow Military District, specifically the 2nd Air Defence Corps. This should be very bad news for him, but for two huge strokes of luck. Firstly, today of all days, at this time of all times, Scheduled maintenance of the radar equipment is taking place. As part of this, the radar will need to be switched off and all aircraft in the air at the time, given the identifier, I am one of us. Because of the unknown aircraft on his screen, the radar operator initially refuses to switch off his radar, but he is told he must do so. And so Rust is automatically assigned the friendly identifier, along with all the other aircraft. His slow little Cessna should still be easy enough to pick out on the radar, except for the second piece of luck. He'd entered the new zone in a training area full of around a dozen light training aircraft, all with radar signatures and performance characteristics very similar to his Cessna. In fact, it's a pretty safe bet that they would have been Yak-12s, which of course is a type of plane that the fighter pilot had mistaken him for earlier. Once the radar is switched back on, Rust is completely indistinguishable from all the other little aircraft with the I am one of us ID. He is, at this moment, under better cover than any spy could ever have been throughout the history of the Cold War. At 4pm, Rust enters the next air defence zone. Initially, he retains his friendly ID, but... One of the procedures for aircraft under Soviet radar control is that they regularly reset their transponder codes at predetermined times. The idea behind this is that if an aircraft fails to make the switch at the right time, they would then appear hostile to the radar controllers. This is basically an extra layer of security to catch out suspicious aircraft. And of course, this is exactly what happens to Rust, except because of where he's just come from, i.e. a training area, the commander of the radar unit believes he must be a student pilot who's simply forgotten to make the switch. So, rather than label Rust as an intruder, he orders that he's labelled as an aircraft who is flying not in accordance with the correct procedure. Obviously, there is a massive difference. He's now being seen as a student who's messed up rather than someone who's potentially a threat. Uh, Incidentally, the commander who made this decision and his uh, radar operator are later sentenced to five years in prison for their mistake. A few minutes later, Rust overflies a rocket position. Years later, one of the soldiers who was manning it gave his account of what happened. Quote, Suddenly he flew over our position. I could see the shadow of his plane. It looked like a car was driving through the forest, which was impossible because there were trees everywhere. I called my officer to tell him I'd just seen a car fly overhead. Yes, we know, it was said. At that time, the airspace around Moscow was teeming with small planes without radios. Every communal farm chairman had the chance to fly over his farm with his aunt, so there was a lot of air traffic. But these planes never flew as penetratingly in the direction of Moscow as was the case with Rust, so he kept drawing attention to himself, but at the same time he kept disappearing from the radar screen. But nobody wanted to take responsibility and give an order to shoot such an object. 
Our station was intended to protect against low-flying rockets and B-52 aircraft, which was the issue. That's why no one had taken the responsibility to shoot down this little machine. End quote. So, as we can see, Rust is now causing an awful lot of confusion among the troops on the ground. He's nothing at all like what they've been trained to defend against, i.e. big American stuff, not little West German stuff. And they're receiving no guidance from those with the bigger picture. And that's because, as far as those with the big picture are concerned, well, Rust's just not really on it because of the string of incredible luck he seems to be having. And there's yet another coincidence that benefits Rust. By now, he's just to the west of the town of Turzuk, which is about 150 miles from Moscow. The night before, a Tupolev 22 bomber and a MiG-25 interceptor had collided mid-air. Rescue and investigation teams were working in the area, including two helicopters. A radar controller sees Rust passing slowly through the area, assumes he's one of the helicopters, and once again labels him as friendly. Rust flies on, completely unaware of the incredible series of events falling in his favour. He's enjoying himself, actually. He's having no difficulty seeing the landmarks he's chosen for his waypoints, and he is confident that he's going to complete his mission. Quote, I had a sense of peace. Everything was calm and in order. At 5.40pm, Rust flies within the control zone of Moscow's Sheremetyevo airport, which is just to the northwest of the city. And this is actually really dangerous. Loads of big aircraft full of passengers landing and taking off, and suddenly a light aircraft, hard to see on the radar, with no transponder code that's impossible to reach by radio. All handling of passenger aircraft is suspended until he's out of the zone. 20 minutes later, at just after 6pm Russian time, Rust makes out the silhouette of a large city. Moscow. Now he's certain that he's made it. He takes off his motorbike helmet. He believes that they won't shoot him down over the city. And he's actually absolutely right. All airspace over Moscow is prohibited to both military and civilian traffic. It's very clear to the radar controllers that something is now very, very wrong. But it's too late. They can't risk shooting him down now. Matthias Rust has, against absolutely all odds, made it to Moscow. Having had no problem navigating this far, Rust now finds it a lot more difficult. Moscow doesn't have a distinct skyline of skyscrapers like a lot of major cities. It's a lot harder to pick landmarks out from the air. For half an hour, he darts around over the city, trying to spot something he might recognise. Finally, he does. The Hotel Rossier, a massive hotel that was once the largest in the world and remained the largest in Europe. Now, that makes everything easier. Just over from the hotel, he can now see the distinctive red turreted wall of the Kremlin. And just outside that, Red Square, with the beautiful St Basil's Cathedral, built by Ivan the Terrible in the 1500s, at one end. Legend has it that Ivan was so pleased with his new cathedral that he had the architect blinded so that he could never create anything so beautiful ever again. But Rust isn't here to learn about history. He's here to make it. He heads towards Red Square. Quote, It was really puny and small. I thought, oh God, hopefully the dimensions are right, but I can really get down there. And then I circled a few times and found that there were an incredible number of people in the square. He continues to circle Red Square, getting lower and lower, to make it clear to the people down there that he wants to land. 
But this has the opposite effect. More people begin to gather in the square to get a view of what's going on. He considers, for a moment, landing inside the Kremlin itself. Quote, But then I realised that, although there was plenty of space, I wasn't sure what the KGB would do with me. If I landed inside the wall, only a few people would see me, and they could just take me away and deny the whole thing. But if I landed in the square, plenty of people would see me, and the KGB couldn't just arrest me and lie about it. So it was for my own security that I dropped that idea. He keeps circling. Neither the Kremlin nor Red Square itself seem particularly safe options. Then, he notices a bridge between the Kremlin wall and the huge hotel. It's six lanes wide and there's barely any traffic on it. He makes a decision. He's going to land on the bridge, then taxi his aircraft the short distance into Red Square. And so, Matthias Rust begins his final approach. He has to come in very steeply. There's not enough room for a nice, long, shallow approach. He has full flaps with his engine right back at idle to keep his speed slow enough that he can actually land. At the last moment, he sees that the bridge actually has steel cables strung over the middle as well as at each end, but he decides that there's just enough of a gap for him to drop over the first set, land, and then taxi under the other wires and into the square. And in what is undeniably a very impressive piece of airmanship, that's exactly what he does. He dives down through the gap between the wires, touches down and rolls out along the bridge. Obviously at this stage, Rust is still going a fair bit faster than the cars travelling along the bridge in the same direction, and he has to change lanes to overtake a car ahead of him. Quote, I moved to the left to pass him, and as I did, I looked and saw this old man with this look on his face like he could not believe what he was seeing. I just hoped he wouldn't panic and lose control of the car and hit me. Rust passes under the last set of wires and off of the bridge. He slows and taxis towards Red Square. He'd wanted ideally to pull into the middle of the square and stop in front of Lenin's tomb. But a chain fence around St Basil's Cathedral is blocking his way. He can't quite get through. So he comes to a stop next to the colourful church. He shuts down the engine of his Cessna, closes his eyes and takes a deep breath. Quote, I remember this great feeling of relief, like I'd gotten this big load off of my back. He opens his eyes and looks up at the Kremlin clock tower. The time is 6.43pm, just under five and a half hours since he'd taken off from Helsinki. He takes one more deep breath and steps out of the Cessna. Now Rust leans against his plane and waits to be swarmed by the KGB, or at the very least, Soviet soldiers. And he waits. There's no sign of the military, but a crowd begins to form around him. The people seem very nervous. Some think this must be part of a movie stunt, or maybe it's Gorbachev's private plane. They hesitate, but eventually they approach. Rust speaks no Russian, but he does speak English. One of the growing crowd is a young student who also speaks English, so Rust is able to communicate with them. They ask him where he has come from, so he tells them Germany. Ah, they say, welcome, comrade. No, no, he explains, West Germany. But why? Quote, for peace and understanding, I said, and the Russians all clapped. That was really grist on my mill. I had hoped for that in my wildest dreams, and now it really was. A woman hands him some bread, which is a traditional Russian welcome. People begin to ask him for autographs, and, though he's slightly bewildered, he's happy to oblige. By this point, Rust has been on the ground for about an hour, and unknown to him, the KGB have now arrived. But they don't go straight for him. 
They moved through the crowd, confiscating cameras and notebooks and questioning people. Then a couple of truckloads of soldiers pull up and begin pushing people away and putting up barriers around the Cessna. Then a sinister-looking limousine arrives. The mood darkens. From the reaction of the crowd, Rust knows this must be somebody important. A man gets out of the car and introduces himself, and the student, who's been allowed to stay, translates. The man is none other than the chief of police for Moscow. The fact that he has come personally tells Rust that this is quite a big deal. Through the translator, the following dialogue ensues. Quote, What are you doing here, young man? Rust, I flew here to contribute to international understanding with my flight. I want to build an imaginary bridge between the East and West, open a new chapter in the Book of Peace. Yes, all well and good. Show me your ID. Rust does so. There's no entry visa in here. Rust, no, I don't have one. Why didn't you apply? Rust, if I had asked to fly to Moscow by plane, what would you have done? A pause. Well, of course, refused, but... Great idea. I think your initiative is great. No guns and we do really need peace. I think that's great. But next time, submit an application. The chief of police then wishes Rust all the best, tells him everything else will be sorted out and disappears off in his limousine once again. A few minutes later, another car pulls up and the occupants introduce themselves as being from the State Security Committee. Rust is unaware that this is another name for the KGB. They tell him that they have some questions for him and ask him to accompany them. Rust gets into the car and is driven away. His Cessna, registration Delta Echo Charlie Juliet Bravo, owned and operated by Hamburg Aero Club, West Germany, sits gently cooling down in Red Square, Moscow, capital of the Soviet Union. It is quietly towed away at 3am the next morning. Rust is taken to a local police station for a short time before being moved on to Lefortovo, which is a notorious prison used by the KGB to house political prisoners. The old joke was that Lefortovo was the tallest building in the Soviet Union because you could see Siberia from there. This obviously sounds a bit ominous, but something which every single account from Rust that I've been able to find really emphasises is just how friendly everybody, not just the initial members of the public, is to him. The Soviets had always been portrayed to him as monsters, but that's not his experience of them at all. Even the KGB, who of course have to investigate him, seem to have a bit of admiration for what this teenager has seemingly pulled off. But of course, they can't just take it at face value. Their concern is that Rust hasn't acted alone, that he's part of a wider plot which the West is presumably behind. A lot of planning had clearly gone into this flight, and he'd overcome some fairly ridiculous obstacles, most of which he wasn't even aware of. The truth is, he's just been incredibly lucky. Now, when investigating aviation incidents or accidents, there's something known as the Swiss cheese model. Now, bear with me on this. If you imagine you've got a wedge of Swiss cheese, it's got lots of holes in it, hasn't it? But they don't all line up to make one continuous hole. To do that, you'd need to chop it into slices and then move those slices to line up the holes to make one continuous gap. The idea is that each slice that you're moving represents one thing, potentially minor, going wrong in a chain of events leading to an incident or accident. And uh, statistically, there's usually about nine things that go wrong or nine slices being moved that lead to the incident. And I can genuinely 
think of no better example of the Swiss cheese model in action than Rust's flight. There were so many points, at least nine points, at which he could have been stopped. But he just wasn't. Whether it was through luck or, in some cases, incompetence, all the slices just lined up for him. And he just flew his Cessna right through the hole. The KGB accused Rust of having been given maps by the CIA or perhaps the West German military. But when he gives them the name of the mail order company that he'd used and they're able to order some for themselves, they see he's telling the truth. They take soil samples from along his route to see if he'd been dropping anything biological, but they find nothing, of course. And throughout, he's being continuously questioned, though again, the tone remains friendly. Countless people have been killed and tortured in Lefortovo, but Rust is treated well, almost sympathetically. His parents are even allowed to visit him. Now, in the meantime, and fairly unsurprisingly, the story of a West German teenager landing in Moscow is worldwide news. Remember, this is at a time when the Soviets are still very much seen as the evil empire, and their military in particular as being ruthless. Moscow should have been impenetrable. Rust becomes a celebrity virtually overnight. NBC set up an interview with his parents in which his father says, quote, We are very proud, but we are also a little bit scared. Apparently, he'd been told to say it the other way around. Rust features on the cover of The Times, The Paris Match, Stern and De Spiegel. Forbes magazine nominates him for the Nobel Peace Prize. The Daily Mail calls him, quote, Germany's first real hero since the war. He's given uh, other names by other newspapers. Devil Guy, Devil Pilot, Rusty the Kremlin Pilot, the German Hussar, Peace Pilot, Angel of Peace, Dove of Peace, the Red Baron and the Great Matthias. All of this was before the Soviets had decided what they thought about him. On June the 23rd, 1987, the Soviets complete their investigation and shortly afterwards they charge Rust with illegal entry, violation of flight laws and malicious hooliganism. He pleads guilty to the first two charges but denies the last. His intentions were far from malicious, he says. They were the opposite. His trial lasts three days. He is found guilty of all three charges. Rust is sentenced to four years at Lefortovo. Rust is treated very well during his prison stay. He's allowed outside to work in the garden, he becomes good friends with his guards, and his parents are allowed to visit him every few weeks. It's fair to say that he's not getting the usual political prisoner experience. Now, it would be very easy to assume that this means that actually the Soviets are all soft and cuddly after all, but the reality is that this was probably because the eyes of the world were on him. Here was an opportunity for them to challenge the evil empire tag. Just over a year passes. Then, on August the 3rd, 1988, Rust is told unexpectedly that he is being pardoned and will soon be free to go. A press conference is held in front of TV cameras. The pardon is officially given to him for him to sign, then everybody shakes his hand. He is told to continue his work for peace at home, but to please not return illegally. After the cameras are shut off, the public prosecutor turns to him and says, quote, you are always welcome here in the Soviet Union. Rust never did get to meet Gorbachev, but his mission was more successful than was immediately apparent. For decades, the Soviet people had believed that the only thing standing between them and destruction by the West was the Soviet military. This, of course, was the view that the military very much encouraged. 
The fact that Moscow had been penetrated, and it had turned out to not be the end of the world, massively undermined that. And it also showed them that not everybody in the West was just waiting to destroy them. It also provided a brilliant excuse because of the perceived embarrassment for Gorbachev to sack many of those high up in his military, who also happened to be those most against his reforms. It was the biggest turnover in Russian military personnel since Stalin's purges in the 1930s. This change of personnel, the replacements for whom were much more moderate, allowed Gorbachev to offer more when dealing with the United States, and he was able to openly display his desire to develop closer relations with them. The Star Wars programme was suddenly much less of a sticking point, and the tone became distinctly less hostile. In May of 1988, just a couple of months before Rust is released, Ronald Reagan came to Moscow for a summit. A year or two earlier, this would have been completely unfathomable. During this summit, they discuss and finalise the INF Treaty, which is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Essentially, this means banning their Intermediate Range nuclear missiles on both sides, which of course includes those stationed in West Germany by NATO a few years earlier. This summit and uh, the signing of the INF Treaty is seen by many as, if not the end of the Cold War, at least the beginning of the end of it. Incidentally, the United States withdrew from the INF Treaty in 2019 under the Trump administration. As for Rust's trusty little Cessna, Delta Echo Charlie Juliet Bravo, uh, after having been pretty much completely taken apart and put back together again by the Soviets, it was actually flown back to West Germany. There it changed hands a few times before being bought and taken to, of all places, Japan, where it was put on uh, display for 20 years. It was eventually located and restored by the German Museum of Technology in Berlin, taken back there, and it is actually on display in all its glory there today. So, what happened to Matthias Rust? Well, as you might be able to tell, I have a certain degree of admiration for what he did. I think it was uh, a bit daft, I think it was certainly a bit mad, but I do have some respect for somebody knowingly putting themselves at risk in the pursuit of something which they believe is for the greater good. And I do really think that Rust genuinely believed it was. I would love to be able to sit here and tell you that since then, since returning to Germany, he lived a quiet life, or perhaps now he's a captain with Lufthansa or something like that. But unfortunately, I can't. In 1989, Matthias Rust was convicted of attempted manslaughter after stabbing and very nearly killing an 18-year-old nurse who'd rejected his advances. The charge was actually initially attempted murder, but his lawyer managed to have this talked down a bit, citing his experiences in Lefortovo. After serving part of his prison sentence in 1996, Rust converted to Hinduism. In 2001, he was convicted of theft. In 2005, he was convicted of fraud. For both of these convictions, he only had to pay a fine. In 2009, in an interview, he described himself as a professional poker player. Then in 2012, which is the last verified account I can find from him, he was working as a banker, either in Zurich or possibly in London. Sources for this episode include Der Kreml Flieger by Ed Stuhler, 2012, 
The Notorious Flight of Matthias Rust, Airspace Magazine, uh, article from 2005. Um, various YouTube uh, videos uh, interviewing Matthias Rust. And speaking of YouTube, actually, uh, and this is a reward for having listened this long, I'm sure not many people do, uh, there is footage of Matthias Rust's landing in Red Square. There was a British doctor uh, who happened to uh, be passing by when he decided to film, and he managed to hide his camera from the KGB. So yes, if you look that up on YouTube, you can see uh, the key event in the story. 